sort of want to start with a question, though. Does this event, does this engagement make any difference in Andrew's life? <laughs> or just for the next three, six months, however long it is, does he just go on living like normal, like nothing's changed? And does Heather just go on living like nothing's changed? And then they just show up here the day of the wedding and say, okay, we're getting married. No, that's sort of silly, right? It's an event. This is a momentous event that makes a difference in their lives. It's going to change their lives for the next few months, right? As they plan a wedding, as they prepare for marriage, as they spend, you know, 50, 60 hours with me in counseling. No, <laughs> premarital counseling. No, all those things, though, are, are ways that an engagement or some sort of a, an event changes how we live. This morning, we're, we're not going to talk about engagement and marriage. We're going to talk about a much bigger event, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is He died on the cross for our sins. But the question is the same. Does that salvation that we've received from Christ make any difference to how we're living? And that's the question that Paul is going to come to the church at Corinth and say, we've talked about all these things, and we come to his last argument, his last instruction to the church at Corinth, and He's talked about worship in the church, spiritual gifts in the church, considering each other in gray areas in the church, immorality in the church. He's talked about all these really tough situations. And the thing that he chooses to save for last is to, to challenge them to live in light of the gospel. To not just say, I'm saved, but to say, my salvation changes who I am now. It makes a difference in my life now. And so Paul is going to address an issue, and it looks like one of the issues in the church where they were denying that believers would ever be raised, would ever join Christ in life after death. But, but he uses this as an opportunity to talk about the precious, marvelous gospel and to talk about the incredible resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that that gives us in life, not just for salvation when we accepted Him, but in life every day and a hope for a future in Him. You know, we live in a world that is fascinated with life after death, don't we? I mean, a, a number of years ago, there was a movie, Meet Joe Black, and we found out that life after death looks a lot like Brad Pitt. And, and I'm not so sure about the theology there, but yeah. Nowadays, it's all about zombies, right? Walking dead and, and um, all these things. And, and that, that, that looks a little different. That's not really what I want to look like in life after death. But we're fascinated by it because we don't know. But I believe inherently inside, God has placed in us a desire that there is something more than this life. That there is something more than what we see around us. And praise God as you look at the news. I, I, I crave for something more as I look at the news. As I see the loss of religious freedom in America. As I see people harassed for their beliefs as I see people celebrated for being brave and courageous because they're denying how God made them. This is the world we live in. And there must be something more. Otherwise, it's just worthless. It's just empty. And why continue? And so Paul comes back to this point of the resurrection of Christ. And how does this make a difference in life today? How can we live in light of the Gospel and how does that help us live in an ungodly, dark world? And so we come to the last major argument in, in 1 Corinthians with that in mind. 
Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15. And this is just a beautiful chapter. We're going to look at half of it today, and, and then one of our elders is going to take us through this, the second half of it next week. But just enjoy this text. And so part of this for me is, is it's just encouraging to study about the resurrection. It's like, yes. It's like a shot in the arm. It's also challenging. So I hope it's encouraging and challenging for you too. But we come and we'll take it in the, in the paragraphs that it's broken down in, the, the chunks that it's broken down in. And the first 11 verses I've titled, Remember and Live the Life-Changing Gospel Now. Remember and Live the Life-Changing Gospel Now. And that's not terms we usually use in, in, in terms of the Gospel. Remember, yeah, maybe. But living the Gospel now? Let's explore and see what, what the Holy Spirit through Paul says to us, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And we'll just stop right there. We'll, t- we'll take this in little chunks. But look at some of those wordings. Now I remind you, brothers, of the Gospel. Had they heard the Gospel before? Absolutely. In fact, it says they had received it later in that verse, right? They knew the Gospel. He's talking to believers here, which is really fascinating. And that word for remind is, is not just to bring to mind cognitively, not just to recall events, but to be, make it known to somebody, to make it part of their lives. And so Paul is saying, I would have you know the Gospel. I know you know it, but I would have you know it. Well, like, okay, you use the same word twice. But he's, he's differentiating between just an intellectual assent to, oh yeah, I believe Jesus Christ died and rose again, to knowing it and making it part of our lives. I, a great example of this. Okay, I can come to my wife's birthday, and if I say, I remember her birthday, and, and we go through the day, and, and the next day she goes, did you remember my birthday? Yeah, I remembered it. Remembered it a couple times throughout the day. Is that good enough for her? No, no why I heard a lot of wives answer. <laughs> does remembering mean something different to my wife? What does it mean? It means to actually do something about it, to put it into practice, to recognize it. You know, we're coming up on our 25th anniversary. If I just remember it and say, oh yeah, that's great, that, that, that's minimizing it. There's an expectation when we think of remembering, and, and Paul is using that here, I remind you, I want you to make the gospel known in your life. Then he goes on to that which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And those are three very important phrases. That you received is how we normally think of the gospel, right? When we think of our testimony, we think, oh, that's when I accepted Christ. That's when I chose to believe in Him. That's when I chose to give Him my life. That's how we normally view salvation. But salvation always has a past aspect when we were saved, but then it has a present aspect. And Paul is saying, on which you stand. Not on which you stood, but on which you stand. And so the Gospel, he is saying, is the foundation of our walks. It's the foundation of who we are in Christ. It's why I can say I am an adopted son of the King. That changes my status, doesn't it? It changes who I am. But then I love the next phrase in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. And there is an ongoing and future aspect to the Gospel. 
And the wording there is, is very specific to saying God is still at work in our lives. It's what we would call a passive verb, which means we don't do anything other than obey Him, and He's the one changing us. And what an incredible statement to the work of the Gospel today in my life. You're being changed. That implies you haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. And praise God, because of that, we get to see Jesus at work in each other's lives every day. We get to see Jesus at work changing us, molding us to be like Him. And so, yeah, none of us have arrived, but what an opportunity to see God's grace. And so Paul starts with this beautiful statement, and and this passage is is just filled with rich statements about the Gospel that that it's hard to go past. He goes on in verse 2 and says, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he, he makes this statement about the Gospel that it's at work in our lives now, not just in the past. It makes a difference. And he says, hold fast to that message. If you hold fast to that message, make it part of life. And we see there, in, in just a, a short phrase, the perseverance of the saints. God will help true believers persevere. In fact, saving faith proves itself over time. It sets itself apart over time. And so God, as He has us hold to a saving faith, that's what proves that saving faith. But also insincerity and unbelief is proven over time. If it was believing in vain, in a haphazard manner, without thought, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, it doesn't make you a believer. It's when we give our lives to Christ. When we give our lives to the Gospel. And say, He is Lord. That's just the first two verses. Isn't it great? we got 34 of these this morning. <laughs> he goes on in what, what is, again, one of the most beautiful descriptions of the Gospel. So now he's, he's talked about the, the power of the Gospel. Now in verses 3 and 4, he gets to the description of the Gospel. And he's reminding them of the basics for the Gospel, uh, of the Gospel. And I put in your notes four different points to remind us of the basics of the Gospel. This is to encourage us this morning. It also is helpful if we're going to share the Gospel with somebody. We need to know what to share. And so one of the questions Pastor Andrew and I are are constantly asking is, what is the gospel? Because we as believers, every one of us here needs to be ready with that answer. Ready for an answer of the hope that is in us. And so Paul describes that in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is a primary thing. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that He was buried and that He raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. And it goes on from there. There's four key parts to the Gospel there. The first phrase that Paul uses is Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And packed in that one phrase, think about every word. The word Christ That was the the title of Jesus, that He was Messiah, that He was God. And so Paul is saying Jesus is God. He's fully God. He died for what? Our sins. The implication there is we need a Savior. If we haven't sinned, if we have no need for a Savior, this makes no sense. And, And so the first part of the Gospel is we have sinned. We have rebelled against God who created us, who fashioned us, And we have said, no, I want to do things my way. 
And I think we could agree that every one of us in here has sought after our own way. We've wanted to do things our own way. And packed in that statement is that there's a penalty for that sin. We know that from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, which means the fair results, the fair rewards of our sin, of our rebellion is death, separation from God, eternal punishment. But in this it says Christ died for our sins. And that's a reference to Him paying that penalty. Paying that price and atoning death in our our place. As He took the penalty of death on Himself, in His body, so that we would not be under the power of death. Isn't that beautiful? One phrase brings up our need for Christ and His answer. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You'll see according to the Scriptures twice and it's another phrase that's packed with meaning probably referring to passages in the Old Testament. We don't know which ones Paul has in mind, but probably here Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 would be probably top of mind. But when we think of according to the Scriptures, what does that mean about the plan? What was that? It was predestined. He already knew the plan. When Paul says according to the Scriptures, he's saying Jesus didn't accidentally come and die. But because He loves us, because He saw His children or His creation in sin apart from Him with no way of salvation on their own, God sent His Son according to His plan in His timing to rescue you and I. Amazing. This should stir our hearts like nothing else. First thing, Christ died for our sins. A reference to the cross and paying the penalty Number two, Paul says he was buried. It's just a short little phrase that he was buried, but, but the idea there is that he, Paul's stressing that this was, he was really dead. There was a finality to his death. And we know that. The Romans knew how to kill. They were experts at killing. But think about this. If his, if his followers buried him, there was an acceptance by even his closest friends that he was truly dead. And that's going to go into Paul's argument of the resurrection. Because if Christ hadn't truly died, then the resurrection is meaningless, right? Oh, he woke up from a sleep. That, that has no impact versus God raised him from the dead. And that's the power that is alive in us if you believe in Jesus Christ. So then the third aspect of the Gospel that Paul mentions here is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And we see that phrase again. He was raised by God the Father. And the Scriptures here probably again, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, possibly Jonah. But according to His plan, Jesus Christ was raised. And we we sometimes leave this part out of the Gospel. Because we like the part about our sins being vain. And we like this part, but we forget that this is the victory. This is the exclamation point that says Jesus is God and He has defeated sin. This is where Paul's going in the rest of the chapter. Because if Christ hasn't been raised, you and I have no hope of being raised. We have no hope of a future with Him. But He has been raised. And that changes everything. And then finally in verse 8, Paul Paul begins to talk about... um, Sorry, verse 5. He begins to talk about the appearances. And so the fourth item there is he appeared to many. 
And that serves as a, a proof for Paul that Jesus is alive, that he did rise. That's the basics of the gospel. If someone wants to know how to come to Christ, if someone knows why you're smiling in a dark world, that's what you share. Right there. We need Christ. He came and paid for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He is alive. And if we turn our lives over to Him and believe on Him, we will be alive too. Amen? That's the Gospel. That should bring smiles to our face. That's what we sang about in all of our songs this morning. That's the good news. And so Paul now begins to to sort of unpack this and say, he's reminding the Corinthians, that's the good news. Now he's going to remind them, are you living like it's good news? Has that made a difference in your life? Are you living like marriage is coming (laughs) and changing different things? So we go on, verses 5-8, through we see the appearances. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And the reference there is they're still alive. You can go ask them. Go talk to them. They'll tell you if they saw Jesus or not. There's nothing like living witnesses to corroborate a story. In verse 7, then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul puts himself last. There's a couple things there, a the, the, the couple points in your notes. All these appearances, all these ways that we know that He lives, they remind us that we serve a living, victorious God. We serve a living, victorious God. Isn't that encouraging? The God that we follow is still alive. He still is giving us strength to live by. Pastor Andrew and I have talked throughout 1 Corinthians of, of, of the idols that keep coming up over and over, and some of them just serving pieces of wood that are dead. Not a lot of help to live by. Maybe if you're cold, you need to burn something, but that's about it. We serve a living God who is with you today. A dead Savior can't save anyone, but we don't have a dead Savior. And I love where Paul goes in verse 9 as he starts to talk about himself. Lastly, as one untimely born, um, me, he appeared to me also, and he's... He's realizing his past. And he goes on to talk about it in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Think about that verse. Just just that verse. Paul is saying, I don't even deserve to be an apostle. I was out killing Christians. In fact, he was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, to capture them, to take them into prison when Jesus met him and changed everything. And so Paul's struggling with that, or at least realizing that, because he realizes the depth of of where he was before salvation. But he goes on in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, And so you believed. But Paul's story reminds us that the Gospel is powerful to work in anyone. It can change anyone. There is no one sitting here today with a past that God can't overcome. There is nothing you have done today that Jesus can't forgive 
and hasn't paid for on the cross. And there may be some of you here today that have heard the message of the Gospel and one of your struggle points might be, I don't think Jesus could save me. Oh, I've got to tell you, Jesus can save you. He can save you today. And what an example. If He can take Paul and change his life, He can change your life. Don't let that stop you from coming to Christ. The Gospel is greater than all. Christ is greater than all. Paul mentions grace there. Did you notice that? 10, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain or empty. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And he's saying, God took me out of junk and and the crud in my life and He saved me. He turned me into His child and His grace wasn't empty because now I'm serving Him. It made a difference in his life, he's saying. And that's part of his argument to the Corinthians. It should make a difference in your life too. We need to remember God's grace. We need to remember God's grace tomorrow as we go to work, as we take care of kids, as we get into the busyness of life. God's grace is still at work in our lives and it motivates us to serve Him. It motivated Paul to give all for the Gospel. If we're to live in light of the Gospel, we need to see where God has taken us and respond to that grace and spill that grace over on everyone around us. We talked about that with spiritual gifts. So the first 11 verses, the first section, remember and live the life-changing Gospel now. It's not just in your past, it's your present and it's your future. Second section there, verses 12-19. through Titled, Be Confident That Our Faith Is Real and We Will Be Raised to Eternal Life. Be confident that our faith is real and we will be raised to eternal life. And now Paul gets into it. He gets into some of the arguments. He's dealing with people that that are saying the dead are not raised. Sort of the the phrase I put in your notes, and it's not from from Scripture, it's just what I think that they're saying. Dead men don't rise. Think of a certain ride at a place near us. Dead men tell no tales. Yeah. It's because they're dead, right? And it's sort of like that. Dead men don't rise. That's what the, some in the church were, were teaching. Probably, again, this is we're talking about Corinth living in an ungodly world. They're taking some of the philosophy from the world around them. And in the Greek mindset, the, the idea was that the, the spirit is somehow good, the body is bad, and the body is a prison for your spirit. And so if you die, woohoo, the spirit is free, the body's dead, and it's uncaged. So their argument is why would you ever want to go back into the body? That's stupid. And the church was, was beginning to, to take some of this and bring it into their practice that there is no resurrection from the dead, there's no reunification with Christ, there's no restoration of all creation, and, it, and it's heresy. And so Paul says, let's deal with it. And you know, we have, we have to deal with things from our culture infiltrating the church today, don't we? I mean, in, in Arlington, Virginia, a minister recently said, we have closed our minds to such trivial considerations as the question of the resurrection of Christ. If you fundamentalists wish to believe that nonsense, we have no objections, but we have more important things to preach than the presence or absence of an empty tomb 20 centuries old. 
that church is going to die. Because it's devoid of the power of the gospel. And we can, we can say that, but we're, we're watching churches give in to gay marriage. We're ch- watching churches give in to all kinds of pressures from our society. Because we don't want to be on the wrong side of history is sort of the current phrase. I'm going to take this side of history. And we're going to stand on this. And so Paul comes at the church and says, you've taken some of the culture and you, you've, you've let it impact your theology. Let's deal with that. Dead men don't rise? Well, let's talk about that. And so he, he begins in verse 12, and this whole section is, is sort of a what-if section. Okay, what if Christ hasn't been raised? What does that look like? So he starts with 12 and 13, sort of introducing this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he's tying the two together, our future hope of of heaven with Christ, with Christ's resurrection. And some might have been teaching, well, okay, maybe Christ rose, but you and I won't. And he's saying you can't separate the two. If you are saying we have no future with Christ, you are saying he didn't rise. It's Paul's argument. It's a powerful argument, but he's going he's gonna to expand on that because on its face you can say, well, that's not really what I'm saying. But he's going to expand on that. But this is key. This is worth getting excited about. The resurrection of Christ is our hope of a future with Christ. So he goes on in the next few verses to the what-if section. And I have five things in your notes. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, so what if Christ has not been raised? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So the first, first thing Paul mentions is preaching and faith are useless. They're empty if Christ is not raised. And think about faith. Faith needs to be in something that's worthy of, of being in, right? I can have faith that this piano will save me. I can sit here all day and this piano will never save me. This piano will never pay for my sins, even if I crush it with a sledgehammer. This is a dead object. There's nothing here that can save me. My faith is empty. It's like believing the Cubs will ever win the World Series. Sorry for some of our Cubs fans. (laughs) But do you get the point? He's saying if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is empty. What we've been preaching is empty. If Jesus can't conquer death, and we've preached it, He isn't the great God. And it goes into His next point, and we're liars. So verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And so the second what if is he's he's stepping them through the conclusions of of their beliefs. Okay, if Christ hasn't been raised, then the second thing is all of us have been lying to you. And he's speaking of the apostles. And and the wording there is that we are caught in a lie. You've caught someone in a lie before, right? Their eyes are like, you know, they're, they're like, he's saying you've caught us in a lie if Christ hasn't been raised. He goes on in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Sort of the same ideas as the first point, except now it's worthless 
it doesn't have any power, and you are still in your sins. That's the key phrase there. You are still in your sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, follow the logic of this. If Christ hasn't been raised and He was paying for our sins, then He did not fully defeat our sins. They are not fully paid for. Or He was a sinful man and He was just taking on His own penalty. Those are sort of your two options if Christ hasn't been raised. And that's what Paul's bringing up. If Christ isn't raised, you're still stuck in your sins. You still have to pay the penalty of death, eternal separation from Christ. You still are in the bondage of sin now. And there is no one alive that can help you overcome sin tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. This makes a difference. It's not just sterile theology. Because Christ has paid for our sins. And I am clean and righteous before God through Christ, our Mediator. Imagine if there was no hope for forgiveness of any of your sins. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave any of us? Without the resurrection, Jesus is still dead and separated from God, and so are we. But the power of sin has been broken. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. A couple of other points Paul brings up. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The fourth item there is, if Christ had not been raised, believers before us are lost forever. They're just dead and rotting in the grave and there's no hope. But we know that we have a different view of death. And we have hope. And those that we love that have already been taken home that know Christ, we know we will see again. And we've just said see you later instead of goodbye. The final item, verse 19, the final what if, is if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, okay, if Christ hasn't been raised, then this life is it. We have no future with Christ. And really, that's pitiful. John Piper said our afflicted lives are not pitiable because Christ rose from the dead. See, what are we here for if Christ hasn't risen? What are we here for if the Gospel hasn't changed us? Nothing. We're wasting a Sunday morning. It's empty. We're following a pipe dream and a false hope. I mean, imagine, and sort of with our wedding theme, we saw a wedding up here. Many of you saw a wedding up here yesterday. Uh, Imagine if Celeste had gone through six months, a year of preparation, and she had put together all the decorations, and all the plans were here, and and they get to yesterday, and Justin just never shows up. And had never had any intention of showing up. We would say, we would pity her, because her her trust in that situation, and he did, by the way, it's all good. Um, her trust in that situation, her understanding of that situation was in a lie. And do you see how that lie would have then taken everything she did for the last year and made it just silly, futile, empty? That's Paul's argument here. If you're following Christ, if you're coming to church, if you're going through the motions and you don't really believe Christ rose from the dead and you're not really following Him, 
That's pitiful. And that's a challenge to us. Some of us go to church all the time and we think church saves us and doing the right thing saves us. But if we aren't giving ourselves to the Gospel, to the resurrected Christ, there's no salvation there. And we're wasting time. Don't waste time. Follow Christ with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have a permanent home that's not here. And so we live differently. We move on. Verses 20 to 28. We need to know the ending. Christ wins, defeats all evil, and brings believers with Him. Amen? I love this section. Because it's referring to Christ as the King, as the Ruler. And let's just read these verses 20 to 28. But in fact, and so Paul starts with, okay, he's done all the what-ifs, and he starts with, but actually the facts are Christ did raise, praise God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And he's coming to the certainty of Christ's resurrection setting in motion the reversal of the curse. He's saying, okay, at the beginning, Adam, he sinned. And because of his sin, all of us, as he was our representative, but all of, of humanity has inherited that sin. And so we all have inherited the punishment for that sin, separation from God and death. But that wasn't the end of the story. And so he's comparing that with Jesus who came and through another man because He died on the cross in our place for our sins, all those who believe in Him will live forever with Him. We will be raised. We will spend eternity with our Lord and Savior if we follow Christ. It's an incredible reversal. An act that plunged the world into a Genesis 3 dark world and another act that gives complete hope and offers righteousness through His Son before God. A righteousness that is not our own, but Jesus secures for us. So Paul goes on in verse 23 to show that Christ's resurrection shows that Christ rules over all. And this, I get excited about this because he wins and I'm on this side. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And, and we're, we're getting an order here. And he's saying Christ was the first that was risen from the dead. Now we know others rose from the dead, but they died again. He was the first that rose from the dead to, to life forever. And the first fruits there, just real quickly, it comes from a feast, a festival that Israel had, and it was the festival of the first fruits. And when you had a harvest, you'd bring your first grains of wheat or whatever it was, and you'd offer them to the priest, and that was a symbol that there was more to come. And so you gave your first to God, saying it actually is all God. Much like our tithes, we should take the first that we give, that we receive from God, we give that to God as a sign and a symbol that everything we have is God's. And so really when he says Christ, his resurrection is the first fruits, he says he's the first one, but a whole harvest of believers are coming that will be raised to eternity with him. What an incredible promise. So he says Christ was first. That already happened at the resurrection. Then at His coming, the second coming, the rapture, those who belong to Christ. And we know that the dead in Christ will rise. We know that those who believe that are in Christ will be reunited with Him and resurrected. But the story isn't done because evil still has to be defeated. So in verse 24, Then comes the end 
probably referring to the great white throne judgment at the, after the millennium. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And we know that at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be, be freed and he will amass an army and he will come at, at God, at Jesus, and Jesus will go poof. Okay, maybe a little more warfare than that. He just wipes them out. Because God wins. And He proves His authority over all. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And after that point, there will be no more death. It will have no hold on us because of the resurrection of God. And we see an already and a not yet. We already are experiencing the the power of victory over death. We already know that we will have eternal life with Christ. Although we all we, we, we face a death here on earth, we know that we will live in Christ. But eventually there will be no death at all. That's the not yet. Death will be completely defeated. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. Sort of Paul making a parenthetical thing. Okay, all things are under Jesus, but that doesn't include God the Father. Because in the Trinity, they have, they have different work. And God the Son is, is under God the Father, but they are both still God. And that's one of the mysteries of the Trinity. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him and put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. And the point is, God wins. He rules over all. Nothing can stand against our Creator. That's the side we're on. That's encouraging. So we come to the last section, and as we close, verses 29 through 34. Since we will be raised to live with Christ, live for what lasts, not what is temporary. Uh, Let me just ask a question. If there is nothing after this life, if there is no hope of eternity with Christ and this life is all there is, how would we live? Why not do whatever you want, right? Hey, if this is it, let's make a huge bucket list and let's start knocking those things off because it doesn't matter how I live. There's no accountability. There's no future. There's no hope. Let's live and let live. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die, so let's enjoy it to the fullest. Do you see how that can happen? That's what was happening at the church of Corinth. Because they were living for now, not for eternity. So Paul starts with with a question from their experience. Difficult question. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? At that point, I, I would hope a number of heads would come up and say, What? Baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? And Paul here is probably using an example that they knew about either in the church or outside of the church and saying, if you're doing this, it really proves you believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, one of the commentators said that he knows of about 50 different ways this text could be taken. I am not going to give you 50 different ways. Couple of, uh, because we, we don't have being baptized on behalf of the dead anywhere else in Scripture. And it doesn't look like Paul is commanding us to. And so one of the options is he's just taking a practice that was in the city that he doesn't approve of, but he's using it to prove his point. 
He already did the same thing with meat offered to idols in chapter 8. And so, and he does this in Acts sometimes. He's just a brilliant debater. And, And so that's probably the most likely. Others say, well, maybe it was baptism with the dead in mind because we'll meet them again someday. I never really understood where they were getting that one from. Um, There's all kinds of other options there. Some have said, well, maybe we should be baptized on behalf of the dead. No, this probably is just using something that isn't true. One of the clues we see is Paul uses different words there. Otherwise, what do people, ESV uses, NIV and New American Standards say, otherwise, what do others um, mean by being baptized for the dead? So he's not including him and those that believe there. So it looks like something outside of themselves. So that's just a brief explanation of that. But then in verse 30, he goes to some of the, the ways the gospel changes how we live now. And catch these. First in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And the first thing he brings up is a willingness to risk all for the eternal. To die to self. He says, if the resurrection isn't true, if this faith isn't true, if we're just playing a game here, why are we willing to sacrifice everything? Makes no sense. He says, I die every day. He's at risk every day. He dies to himself every day. For us, how should the gospel change how we live? We've got to be willing to step up and do things for God. To get beyond ourselves, to risk our own selves because this is temporary. Heaven is eternal. In verse 32, he goes on, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Quoting Isaiah 22 there in some popular um, philosophy of the time. And he's referring to times in Ephesus where he had to fight against people that didn't believe and and heretics. And he just was in, in a battle for the faith. Probably doesn't mean actually fighting beasts in the Colosseum. As a Roman citizen, they couldn't put him in the Colosseum to do that. But he's using that as a metaphor for just some of the battles he has against people that oppose him. And he says, why, why even battle people if this is all there is? Let's just have a good time and not fight for truth. So if we're to live, if the Gospel is to change how we live now, we've got to be willing to fight the good fight. Fight for what is true and not just live in the moment. It's so easy to fall into just living for the moment. What do I want? What will I enjoy? We need to be willing to sacrifice. He goes on to say, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You guys heard that verse before? I've already taught that to my kids. And the bad company here is people who are just willing to follow their own desires. He says, people that just live for today that have no purpose in life That corrupts other people. It's empty. It's destructive. You and I have a purpose in life. We need to live like it. Live for the Gospel. And he ends with verse 34. Strong words. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Sober up, he's saying, in your thinking. Get it right. Start to use your brain. As is right. And do not go on sinning. So he says, get your thinking right and stop sinning now. Amen? One of our motivations is to not sin. 
is that this is temporary and God by His grace has saved us into so much more. And then the last phrase, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And that could be that some of them are acting like they don't know God and I think that's part of it. But I also think he's referring to that they have forgotten why they're here and some around them have no knowledge of God. And they've given up their testimony. They've given up their impact in the world because we need to eat, drink, and live for today. Village, we have a mission here by God. And if we're not done with our mission, have Him just take us. I mean, if we are done with our mission, just take us home. I'd rather eat and drink in heaven with my Savior. But we're not done here. And people need to hear the gospel. How this week is the gospel going to make a difference in your life? Will it? Because we can live every day as saved people where it doesn't make any difference. But tomorrow morning when you wake up, how will the gospel, the fact that we are saved and being saved, make a difference? I challenge you to find ways this week. How will the gospel make a difference in everyday life? We'd like to end with a time of communion. And elders, if you'd come forward. And this is a chance to remember the gospel. But this morning, it's a commitment to put the gospel into practice. The hope of the gospel, being able to risk for the gospel, to live for the gospel, to put aside the temporariness of, of pleasures and temptations of this world and say, this is my core. This is my foundation. What Christ did for me on the cross. Lord God, we thank You for Your sacrifice. For that incredible grace we don't deserve that makes a payment we couldn't pay so we can live for You when we should die. Lord, man, radically change our lives to where people this week know that we are living for the Gospel and there's something different. Help us to get out of ordinarily life and find ways to live the Gospel every day. Thank you, God, for your sacrifice, for your gift. In Jesus' name, amen.